Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 32 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And this week we're interviewing Amber O'Hearn. Now, for many of our listeners, you may well know Amber as uh, one of the keto rock star royalty who is a committed carnivore. So it was actually really interesting given that both Jackie and I have experimented and tried carnivore with mixed results. So it was, it was a really good chat that we've, that we're going to be having with Amber this week. Yeah. And I remember when I first tried carnivore and it was a couple of years ago that, um, I asked a question on the KKB forum and, uh, yeah, she got back to me with some suggestions. So it's really good. So as we'll find out, Amber is very generous with her time and she's an absolutely wonderful uh, science communicator of the well, the science behind carnivore. So she's able to explain it in, in very general terms, which is really great for, you know, really myth-busting, you know, the fact that we don't actually need to, to eat vegetables. So... Um, in the recording, I mentioned that I met Amber in 2014, but obviously in my fangirling excitement, I actually meant 2017 when I met Amber at the Low Carb Breckenridge conferences. And then she came to, to Keto Fest where I also met her again, as well as, yeah, the, the other conferences as well. So she's very approachable and, yeah, very generous with her time. Lots of people were always coming up to her with questions. Great. So, shall I tell you a bit about Amber? Please, tell us a bit more. L. Amber O'Hearn has an eclectic background with academic publications in several fields, including theoretical mathematics, cognitive psychology, computational linguistics, and more recently, evolutionary nutrition and biology. She's been studying and experimenting with low-carb ketogenic diets since 1997, and is particularly interested in evolutionary constraints and interspecies differences. Amber has been eating a nearly plant-free diet since 2009. Fantastic. Let's hear more from Amber. Welcome, Amber, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you with us today. Thank you. It's fabulous to be here. (laughs) We always ask our guests, where in the world are you? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Lovely. Do you have a lot of snow at the moment? Yes, actually. We've had a a bit of a snowy year and we're getting, we got a foot last week and it hasn't completely cleared yet and I expect another one soon. Mm. 
So were you hit by the storms that hit Texas? I think so. I think it was all the same system and it was very cold. Well, I think around negative 15 Celsius, which is kind of rare here. Hmm. But you must be used to that. As a Canadian, yes, it doesn't really phase me that much. <laughs> <laughs> Amber, it's lovely to see you again. And for the benefit of the listeners, Amber and I, we were first met. It's been nearly three years ago when we met in Breckenridge for the first time at the Low Carb Conference. And it was interesting that one of the memories came up in my Facebook timeline and it was like, oh, be still my heart when we, when we got to meet for the first time at the party house with the two keto dudes. That was a wonderful time and I'm really looking forward to the next time we get to see each other in person, but I'm glad that we can do this. And it was really interesting because obviously, well, this was actually 2014. I must apologize for all the math, the math people out there. It's actually four years ago. Um, so it's not actually three, it's four years ago that, um, that we first met that you were presenting obviously about your particular carnivore approach. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit how you became to that way of eating? Yeah, you know, it was not really planned. <laughs> I had I had been on a low-carb diet for quite a while, so maybe I should even start with that because before I was into low-carb, I had been I was brought up vegetarian and I had started eating meat when I left home. Meat was never really forbidden from me when I was growing up, it's just that we didn't eat it at home, and I liked meat and was eating it. But I also, I had I got to university and began gaining weight very quickly. Uh, it wasn't coincident with beginning eating meat again, because um, I had been away from home before. But when that happened, my first thought, just from my upbringing and everything that I had learned in society, was that the way to cope with that would be to improve my diet and exercise. And by improve my diet, that meant to me, stop eating meat again. And so that's what I had turned to. And it was, it was completely unsuccessful, uh, even with the addition of lots of exercise and, and big changes in my diet, including eventually veganism for a short period. I didn't lose any of the weight. I might have slowed down the gain. And that was when I first heard of a low-carb diet. I actually thought it was crazy when I first heard of it. Um, what could be more ridiculous and unhealthy than giving up the foundation of our diets, right? The, the grains and the, the complex carbohydrates. Uh, but eventually, I went after strong vegetarianism and veganism even didn't help me. I, I had an experience where I visited Russia as part of my studies, and it was very difficult at that time. I don't know how it would be now to get any kind of vegetarian food that wasn't just plain pasta or something. Uh, and and I was with staying with hosts and wanted to be gracious, and I decided to eat meat. And when I returned from that semester-long visit, I had actually lost weight. And even though I didn't necessarily think that eating meat was going to be the solution to my weight problems, I realized it wasn't what was holding me back. And 
that was when I started looking for other things. And it was just at that time in 1997, so I was 24, that I found uh, Michael and Mary Dan Eads's book, Protein Power, which had just come out. And so it was on the shelves where I was looking, desperately trying to find some other solution. And I found it and devoured it. And that completely changed my life, of course, as you can see now in retrospect. That was, that was half my life ago. I'm 48 now. So I, I read that book and I, I actually went to the library to look up many of the medical references because I was so interested in how this could possibly be. And through that education that it gave me, it also kind of taught me how to think about nutrition and how to read the literature and also taught me some kitchen skills. And, and it worked very well for me for a long time. But if you fast forward, 12 years later, I had had children. I had had problems with depression and had been taking antidepressants and I had aged and I don't know which of these factors, if any, were the reason, but I had gained weight over time despite being very compliant with my low carb diet and very happy with my low carb diet all through that time. But the weight gain had, had slowly crept up and up and up such that at five, six, I was about 200 pounds by the end of 2008. And I was miserable and I couldn't understand why what had worked for me and what appeared to be the best therapy that I could find by reading wasn't working for me anywhere, wasn't helping. And so that was, it was in, in December of that year that I stumbled across a little obscure forum called Zeroing In on Health, which was a group of people who, most of them had low-carb backgrounds, but had situations similar to mine where low-carb by itself just wasn't enough to get them where they wanted to be. And But what they were doing was eating no plants, only foods from the animal kingdom, as they like to say. And for many people, it was not only resolving some of the residual weight problems that they were having, but actually other health problems as well, which was really quite fascinating. And that's why the, the site was called Zeroing In on Health. Zero was for zero carb, which was what they were calling this diet, even though carbs isn't exactly the issue. It's more about plants versus animals. But health was really the focus. And so having found that, I decided I would give it a try. And it was, it was actually surprisingly intimidating. I've, I've done lots of things in the past, like completely cutting out meat or completely cutting out carbs or at least to a very low level. But for some reason, the idea of having no plants on my plate, no salad, no, side broccoli or any kind of vegetables whatsoever, just a piece of meat seemed intimidating. And so I kind of spent a couple of weeks getting myself sure and <laughs> preparing for it and giving myself a timeline, like I'm only going to do this for three weeks and then I'm going to evaluate so that it wouldn't feel too intimidating. Mm. And... 
and then the results were just beyond my expectations. <laughs> so what did you notice? What, what were the changes in those first three weeks? Well, the first thing that happened was I started losing weight very quickly, which was, of course, really uh, rewarding and um, what I wanted. So that was self-reinforcing. And I noticed that I was feeling better from a mood level. And now, of course, if you've been struggling with your weight for a long time and suddenly you start losing weight, in a sense, effortlessly, of course, that's going to boost your mood. So I, I certainly didn't think it was going to be, I didn't interpret it as the time as, well, my, my depression is cured. And, and, you know, at that time, actually, I had been, I had been originally diagnosed with depression at that first year in university when I was 20. And I had taken antidepressants, mostly Prozac, and it, it just wasn't very effective. And they, they diagnosed it then as treatment-resistant major depressive disorder. And eventually, in my 30s, just a couple years before I found carnivore, I had started having symptoms of hypomania, uh, which means, so if you're not familiar with bipolar disorder, in the classic presentation of bipolar disorder, you have these, these huge swings, usually uh, very over the course of a long period of time. So you have a depressive part where you're very depressed, possibly suicidally depressed, and that can last for months. And then you'll have, you'll go into mania, which starts out slowly, but rapidly ramps up into very serious psychotic kind of disorder where you may have little to no sleep. Your, your energy is just through the roof and you're full of excited ideas, but those ideas don't necessarily make sense from a grounded point of view and, and acting on those ideas can often tear your life apart because they will involve things like, you know, grand schemes and money making and, and maybe breaking up relationships and doing dangerous, risky behaviors. Mm -hmm. So what I, what I was exhibiting was not full blown mania, but hypomania, which is similar to this early stage before true mania appears. And it turns out that in some people, that's as far as it gets, and it never goes to mania. And if you have it like that, it's called bipolar type 2. And so I was re-diagnosed as bipo having bipolar disorder type 2. And we had tried different meds. The meds were disastrous. They didn't help me, and they had side effects. And so, so having this mood stability right away was actually felt really quite significant to me, but because the time course of bipolar disorder is so, can be so long, um, you know, I said that in classic bipolar disorder, it can be months at a time in one state, but you can also have a progression of more and more rapid cycling, and that's what I was having. So for me to have the same mood all day was actually <laughs> quite unusual. Um, so, so I, I felt that, but I wasn't going to make any strong, you know, statements about 
what it was doing to me, but I definitely could tell you that mood stability was already a very salient feature for me, even within just a couple of weeks. And I, and I talked to my husband at the time about it, and he said that he hadn't known how to bring it up, but he thought that the transformation already was remarkable and he'd never seen me remotely that stable in the course of our whole relationship. So, so that was the beginning of that. And so when those three weeks were up, which I had planned to end right on my birthday, I guess I was going to be 36, I just decided, oh, well, there's no way I'm stopping this because all, all of the benefits were, I, I just felt so great that there was no way I wanted to stop. Quite envious. I don't have that feeling <laughs> when I do carnival. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, certainly we, it wouldn't necessarily happen for everyone. Yeah. Why would that be? Well, I don't really know what, I, I guess I would want to know what what feels not like that like what the contrast is what you f- what you feel like um when you're just on a low carb diet and what kind of symptoms you're hoping to resolve but also maybe what the character of your previous diet and your carnivore diet looks like because maybe my carnivore diet looks different from yours or maybe my keto diet looks different from yours too. Yeah. But fast forward to now, obviously from December 2008 to here we are in February, February 2021. Oh, Is there any happen? difference? <laughs> yeah, oh, no. <laughs> in a blink of an eye. Um, is your carnivore different to how you've started out? Hey, what sort of changes or evolving iterations have you done? Oh, that's a great question. So I think for the first several years, there was not a lot of change. But when I started, I it was very much like taking what you would be eating for meat on a low-carb diet and removing the plants from it <laughs> but you know a, a low carb diet is going to get a lot of fat from things like salad dressings um, probably salad dressing was my primary source of fat on a low carb diet and maybe cream from coffee and cheese um, and of course cream and cheese were still on my diet and in fact when I started this carnivore diet it was the the um the cultural idea in the group at the time was not to be eating anything that was a plant, but spices and infusions like coffee or tea were not considered to be necessarily off the diet because they're, they aren't providing any caloric content. Um, although I would say even then the more hardcore people would encourage, definitely encourage not eating those because a lot of people we're finding that they felt better without any plant components whatsoever. Mm. So because I was a coffee drinker, I continued to drink coffee and occasionally some herbal teas. And in my coffee, I would still have cream. And so there would be fat sources that way. So I, I emphasize all that because it, if you took kind of standard 
Western Fair and took all the carbs and the plants away and, and plant sources of oil, you would be left with, in many cases, a diet that's very lean. And I don't want to give the impression that my diet was really lean. I, I would say, you know, I did some measurements in the first year, and I don't remember exactly, but I think I was getting anywhere between maybe 65 at the very low end percent fat and more typically probably like 75, 70 to 75 percent fat. Mm. And I ate a lot of steak and a lot of pork chops and a lot of eggs, sort of typical foods like that. And I would, I would never try to decide in advance how much I was going to eat. I would just eat until I wasn't hungry and I wouldn't eat again until I was hungry, except, you know, there are social things like it's dinner time and I had young children. So we would definitely all sit together for that. But I did notice that there were times when my appetite would change quite drastically. So I can remember a for a long time in the beginning, I would cook two ribeyes, for one for my husband and one for me. And in practice, I would end up eating the other half that he didn't finish. <laughs> so I was eating quite a lot. And then sometimes, now and then, I would notice that my appetite was just I would eat the half, and and I would be that would be it. I'd be fine. Um, so most of the changes in the early years were were just on that order. Um, then I would say in about 2014, so five years in, I spent some I spent a summer in New York City, and so I was not eating my regular fare and was eating out a lot and didn't seem to have any bad effect on me, even though eating out often involves residual spices or sauces. So that was, it was good to know. But I started then uh, sort of exploring more raw foods and was eating raw ground beef. And also I would say maybe higher fat and at the same time, my weight was, my weight had been stable at slightly above where my favorite weight is. Even so, I, when I started carnivore, I started dropping weight very quickly. And I think I got into the 140s very quickly. And then I may have stayed there for a while. I don't remember the exact trajectory. Um, but I, I started losing weight again then, and I also started exploring eating. I, I think the, the thinner that I got, the more fat that I needed, to be honest. And so I started having things like I would make bone broths with very fatty bones and have a glass, I, I would take a mug of it and maybe the top, quarter of it sitting on top would be fat hmm. and I would, I would blend it like a bulletproof coffee so it's emulsified but I would I would be drinking that or having um, more bacon I I don't really care for bacon actually I know it's blasphemous but I find it way really too salty yeah. <laughs> but pork belly and and um, so that was interesting 
But then the biggest change that has occurred for me, and it's it's not a happy turn of events, I had been weight stable or or continuing to lose down to to sort of leaner and fitter for a long time until 2017, right around the time that I met you, Louise. Um, in well, I guess in 2018, actually, I I got a a stomach infection, a food poisoning, I guess. I got Campylobacter, and I had to take antibiotics for that. And then later that same year, I had a terrible, terrible salmonella infection. And it's not clear exactly what food those came from because there's some incubation period, and I eat a lot of foods and from a variety of sources. So in any case, that infection made me so sick and gave me gave me long-lasting gut issues. I had never had, you know, a lot of people talk about their bowels not adjusting when, well, I wouldn't say not adjusting ever, but having a period where their bowels are very different on carnivore in an uncomfortable way. And for some people, it's very difficult to get that back into balance. But I didn't really have that issue. But after that salmonella infection, my gut just wasn't healing. And I had such great confidence in the healing power of a carnivore diet because I've been in this community for so long. It had been such a lifesaver for me I mean, such a lifesaver. I, it completely changed my life after having bipolar. And then, you know, it, I didn't really finish the story, but it, it never came back. I never needed my meds again. Um, and I, I had heard so many stories of this that I didn't really think I needed to do anything else. I, I went back on, I mean, I didn't go off, but I continued my diet after this infection and Things just got worse and worse. Um, I, I started gaining weight at sometimes very rapidly. And by, by the time, so in 2019, <laughs> I had decided to run a conference, a carnivore conference, because I felt that the world was ready for a conference totally devoted to that topic and it was just one of the most wonderful experiences of my life, the way that it came together. I I figured out um, who I thought should be speaking and asked them, and everyone said yes, and everyone was enthusiastic, and people came from all over the world, and it it was wonderful. But the, the bittersweet part of that was that at the same time, I was still in the grip of these this intestinal health issue and my weight and so I got to walk out on stage, and here I was at the highest weight I'd been since I had initially healed from carnivore, and I felt um, I felt embarrassed. Um, but anyway, so after that point, I I felt like it was time to start really diving into different variations of both carnivore and and eventually. Um, taking supplements and things that aren't strictly carnivore to try to get my gut back into its proper health. Um, so one of the things, and I think it's one of the things that I've learned the most about that I'm most excited about, is 
the the really high fat ketogenic versions of carnivore diets that um, initially initially when I learned about carnivore and for the first many years I found out that for a lot of people the mere act of removing plants from the diet seems to be at least as important as the ketogenic properties of a carnivore diet. So a carnivore mm -hmm. diet is ketogenic because you're not eating carbs and it's fairly high in fat. Um, but it's not highly ketogenic. It's not like medical intervention level ketogenic the way you would give to someone who has epilepsy, for example. Yeah. And I thought, it doesn't matter. In fact, my experience with low carb was kind of the same way because you can eat a low carb diet, sort of modified Atkins even, where you're not trying to restrict protein and the the level of protein kinds of kind of shakes out on its own because humans humans aren't adapted to having a level of protein that's much higher than say 35% of their calories um, after that point you start to not really feel very well and you need more direct energy sources that don't have to be converted from protein so um, eating if you're on a low carb diet that will just naturally that naturally tends to but through through your appetite mechanisms leads you to add more fat and it it all seems to work out very nicely so a lot of people who are on a carnivore diet are, are ketogenic but only mildly so when they measure it and so i for a long time i kind of dismissed the idea that you would really need to make your diet more ketogenic if you're already doing this carnivore therapy. Yeah. And and even to add to that, when you take all plants and all carbohydrate sources, well, essentially all carbohydrate sources out of your diet, I won't say completely because things like eggs and liver and seafood and even cream, for example, have small amounts some carbs yeah 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 but the more the more carbohydrates you take out of your diet the higher your protein tolerance is for the same level of ketogenesis because carbohydrate is it, it's it's anti-ketogenic in a much stronger way than protein is so so it turns out, and, and I've met some people who need a high level of ketosis for epilepsy, who were initially reluctant to go on a higher protein diet uh, when they went to carnivore and then found that they could do that and maintain the same level, therapeutic levels of ketosis mm -hmm. just because of that. So. So all of that was reinforcing this idea that I had had in my mind that if you're carnivore, you don't need to pay attention to macronutrients at all. And I think for probably the majority, that's actually true. Even even on low carb, that's probably true. But that doesn't mean that there can't be extra therapeutic benefit to specifically eating a higher fat diet, even on carnivore. And it's it's actually really tricky because we as a society don't have sources of fat that are 
carbon plant free anymore that are easily accessible. Um, if you buy meat, it's usually trimmed to a pretty low level so that, you know, just even the fattiest supermarket meat that you can get probably isn't going to get you above 75% fat. And you really either have to start adding it or going to specialty places to get pork belly, for example, or the fatty end of brisket has a lot of fat. And then the other thing about it is that a lot of people, and myself included, although <laughs> I don't know what it would have been like if I had tried this in earnest before my intestinal issues came into play, but a lot of people have difficulty digesting cooked liquid fat in particular. So if you just add, you know, melted animal fat or or tallow by the spoonful, you might be able to tolerate that just fine, but you might actually have difficulty in it. It might not work the same way as if you were to eat it raw. But then there, you know, there are palatability issues as well as safety issues for eating just raw fat. And cured fat is just really hard to get here. I don't know what it's like where you're where you are, but if I want cured meat that's almost all fat, I have to go to a, either a, a specialty store where they probably add all kinds of spices to it because it's a, you know, it's a specialty store where people want gourmet foods. You can't just get a hunk of salt cured fat that doesn't have anything added. So it's actually been, it's been really difficult from a practical standpoint. All of that said, when I eat a very high fat from, for example, I'll, I'll buy my own brisket and um, what I've been doing <laughs> is sous vide it and cooking it at a very low level so that it doesn't render out and has, has a consistency that's a lot like raw, but just sous vide for a really long time so that the pasteurization process takes place. Um, when I when I do that or when I eat raw fat, which I've also done, I actually feel um, a lot better and um, it seems to contribute to, um, I can't say for sure because the healing process has been really long and I'm not all the way where I want to be yet, but it feels like it's making progress compared to the regular carnivore way of eating, which served me for so long. So what are, what are the dangers of eating raw fat then? Well, I don't know about fat in particular, but when anytime you're eating raw food, you could be exposed to pathogens that would make you ill. So, and mm. especially because the whole point that I'm trying to <laughs> cure is from these infections. From that, the pathogens that you... It, it seems like just a... I feel more vulnerable now. I always considered myself, even as a teenager long before I encountered low carb to be the kind of iron stomach person um, <laughs> but now I feel a little bit more conservative on that yeah. level but in fairness I still eat sashimi and I still eat my burgers barely seared I just that's the way I like them the best <laughs> sure me too and you include and you include dairy as well right now not um I find it very difficult to lose weight when I'm eating dairy, and so 
I've decided this year to just really give it a break for a while. So what does your daily food intake look like? Well, so with the caveat that it's varied a lot <laughs> over the years and over the, even over the year and at my whim, I eat a lot of, right now I'm eating a lot of pork belly, a lot of brisket, I will eat eggs, and eggs are one thing that um, I don't have any tolerance issues with them, fortunately. And they will take up a lot of fat, so you can you can blend in a lot of fat to a scrambled egg, and it, it will <laughs> retain a high level. So I eat a lot of eggs, and I wouldn't say to be to be completely um, full fully transparent here I'm not eating that high fat all the time because I do find it hard from a practical standpoint so I also sometimes just eat you know more regular carnivore fare burgers and and pork chops and things like that without the added fat mm. what about chicken oh yes chicken I had chicken wings a couple days ago um, I like chicken thighs do you find a difference between eating the red meat and the white meat? Uh, you mean as in mammals versus poultry? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, and I'm asking this question because when I moved to the UK for that period of time, and I here's another question for you about you know the claims that carnivore is expensive. I tended to eat a lot of cheaper cuts and. Beef and lamb in the UK was obviously relatively more expensive. Mm -hmm. So I ended up eating like processed pork products and lots of sausages or links, we call them in the, in the States. And um, yeah, so pork and chicken. Whereas, and that's the same here in, in Thailand, pork and chicken. But I know I feel so much better on red meat, such as beef and lamb, which obviously is plentiful in, in Australia. So did you notice any right. difference or variation in your energy levels when it's you eat kind of one type of meat? subjective, but I do think I feel better when I have at least mostly red meat. But I don't think that I necessarily feel worse if I'm if I have some pork and chicken if that makes sense and mm -hmm. eggs um, yeah beef can be really expensive and it it depends a lot on the cut so I've I've been getting these briskets at Costco that are it's 3.99 a pound which is really quite reasonable as far as beef goes it's not quite the same level as sometimes the pork that you can get but um, but if I wanted to eat strip steak or ribeye which I also like and do eat when I can um, that's obviously like three or four times more expensive sure. but what about those claims that that particular wave or carnivore as a way of eating is expensive you know the thing about that is that vegetables are really expensive <laughs> so it depends on what you're comparing it to vegetables seem cheap at some level but when you think about like how much nutrition and calories they're actually providing um, the the addition I mean I get vegetables for family members sometimes and and you know you could get I think 
peppers might be something like six dollars a pound or something. I don't I don't know if that's the right number, but but that's you know a pound of peppers compared to a pound of meat in terms of how filling it is and how much nutrient need it's making is just no comparison. So if you look at price per pound, meat looks expensive, but if you look at if you look at what you're getting out of that pound, it's it's really not. And although I ha um, I feel terrible to say that I have let food go to waste sometimes, even meat, uh, by not planning my food schedule properly or, or something like that. Um, I, it feels to me like vegetables are more vulnerable and get wasted more easily on that level. Now, if you're comparing to rice or wheat, yeah, carnivore is going to be more expensive. But then what are you paying? <laughs> What's the price you're paying for that in, in health in costs? Health. Yeah. yeah. Especially where you are, where you're paying for your health costs. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes, as a Canadian, it's quite... I still, I've been here 15 years and I'm still not used to this. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, yeah. I mean, we're very privileged, obviously, you know, with Canada, the UK and Australia having universal healthcare systems. So we rock the Commonwealth, you know, in but it's interesting because I think what that little emoji blew my mind when you were saying about how vegetables or plant-based is anti-nutrient-nutritive and it obviously has in your system, you know, potentially how it created this reaction. Is there a, a simple way of saying how the plant matter interacted with your brain physiology is 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 that the what the system and by removing that you've reduced this reaction well definitely from the most general level that's that's clearly the observation because i was already eating you know a lot of people say yeah of course if you go from a terrible diet to a carnivore diet you'll feel Great, but that that wasn't the case for me, and I don't think it's the case for a lot of people. I was eating a, a home cooked, low carb diet with plenty of vegetables and and so called whole foods um, for a long time while my disease progressed, and and simply removing the plants had this had this effect. Now, as to what the mechanism of that is, I mean, we have some ideas, but we really need to know more we need more study but but so one popular idea is that that there's a there's a large difference between meat and plants in that plants are full of phytochemicals so just from a, an evolutionary standpoint if you're if you're an animal and you are the kind of animal that other animals like to eat you're primary strategies to get away but if you're a plant you don't have that strategy and so the strategies that evolved for survival is biochemical plants produce all these substances that literally kill um, or or just damage many of their predators particularly insects that are much smaller but even though the, it's not really about size because all herbivores have really advanced systems of, of dealing with the toxins that they're constantly bombarded with from plants that are 
trying to protect themselves from from being eaten. Any plant that didn't do that was not not going to survive uh, the next generation. It would just be, you know, prey. So, mm. so one idea is that those that in people like me who have this very strong positive beneficial response to removing plants we have some kind of compromised ability to detoxify and detoxification starts in the gut so a lot of people think it might have to do with the microbiome or more simply just the the barrier the gut barrier so your your intestines are cells that are that are all lined up together and they they're they're tight they're tightly bound together so as not to let in anything that they don't want to let in because mm. i mean you're you're basically exposing yourself to anything in your environment that that comes through with your food and so we have a very advanced system of of choosing what goes in and what goes out and if that system is compromised even even a bit that could just really increase drastically the amount of toxic exposure that you're getting and overwhelm your immune system and i th i think a lot of people think that this is intimately tied to what looks like immune or so-called autoimmune diseases where your immune system is just so overtaxed it maybe it's because it's getting more exposure and then if you're thinking about barrier systems if there's a compromise in the barrier system in the gut it's it's quite likely that you also have compromises in other kinds of barriers such as the blood-brain barrier and so you could actually be getting more exposure to elements in, into your brain that you that you don't have the capacity to handle so that's you know, I think that's probably the the primary hypothesis that people have for why a carnivore diet would work but there also may be um, effects for example due to due to changing um, bacterial populations in the gut having to do with different inputs or the inability to process fiber very well so a lot of people who are having success for, for with a carnivore diet success to them means gut health uh, where they're having serious digestive disorders when they're eating a plant inclusive diet that go away when they take away the plants and that probably has to do with fiber mm. in those number of those groups they talk about oxalate dumping and histamine release is that the sorts of other reactions apart from as you mentioned about the barrier reactions that you have this chemical biochemical neurochemical reactions yes so oxalates are one of those warfare chemicals and um, i think that a lot of people are taking in more oxalates than the body would necessarily <laughs> optimally be able to handle and i think it might be a more prevalent problem these days coming from keto because a lot of the foods that we replace carbohydrate heavy foods with on a ketogenic diet happen to be really high in oxalates so um, certain kinds of seeds and and um, spinach 
Right, so a lot of cruciferous vegetables can be high in oxalates too. So almonds, kale, yeah. yes, almonds. So if you're if you're suddenly replacing bread with almond powder, for example, it might be a huge increase in your oxalate uptake. On the other hand, um, the the science behind oxalate dumping, I'm I'm really not completely comfortable with because uh, I think it's like so if you have released if you've if you've eliminated oxalates from your diet and you have oxalates in your tissue those are those it seems it stands to reason those will start coming out and i'm not saying that that can't be responsible for symptoms but then there there have been claims um kind of way beyond that where where your oxalate symptoms will come and go and they're not very measurable and and I feel that that might be a little bit over given too much responsibility for symptoms that are just mysterious and and get lumped in with that that may be due to oxalates but I don't think that we're at the point where we can verify it. Hmm. What was the so other one you mentioned Louise? It was about histamines as well oh, because yes. I'm trying to imagine you know obviously mast cells have the little sort of beads of histamine and you know we're talking about the histamine release and how the food interacts with mast cells which i understand that's you know food allergies yeah that's, that's a symptom yeah so there are, i think there are two ways that you can have histamine responses to food if you're so if you're in a state of high immune activity which obviously a lot of us are these days you can be creating a lot of histamines not just as an allergic response but as a kind of immune response and then if you have a food intolerance on top of that it 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 can get to the point where your histamine levels are building up faster that you then you can clear them and that can definitely lead to symptoms but the other way is that certain and and this particularly would come up on a carnivore diet and could actually be a, a something that someone sees if they're going from a keto diet to a carnivore diet and they f actually feel worse because cured foods or even just foods that aren't completely fresh that many of the amino acids that are in meat and cheese in particular over time will start to break down into uh, histamine and other related amines that can give a biological response so you're actually adding histamine from the outside into your gut when you're eating a lot of cured meats or or even for some people who are very sensitive just leftovers mm. oh okay but how do you respond to you know how sort of like keto is meant to be the panacea and it's meant to have this magic <laughs> cure-all and obviously the new kid on the block but not so new carnivore comes along and, you know, where you have these, well, you know, carnivore can, you know, cure that. And how do you respond to that? Well, on the one hand, I'm extremely enthusiastic about it because I have seen many people who, like, and, and of course personally experienced it, where a ketogenic diet simply was not enough, but a carnivore diet was. But <laughs> on the other hand, I've also had now had the experience where a carnivore diet itself is also not enough in some cases. And that's, that's given me a lot more empathy than, 
than you might have heard from me a few years ago where um, I might have been more likely to think there's something about the diet that they don't realize that they're doing or, you know, and I think, I think it's really easy for people who have had success. Like if you look at someone who has never had a weight problem and they're just much more likely to not question the idea that people who are overweight simply eat too many calories and it's a simple matter of getting more exercise and eating a little less and controlling your your greedy little body right um, yeah. and and i think they come by it quite naturally because that's their world um, and so the more people that have success with low carb the more they will think oh, well, all you have to do is do low-carb. And so obviously if you didn't get success, you're not doing low-carb properly. And 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 then so I think the trend continues. So you have a whole group of carnivores who went through maybe two or three of this, these iterations and yet um, – and yet they still think, oh, well, this is the answer. This time this is the one that is the complete cure and, and don't realize that there can be, you know, there can be health issues, genetic issues even sometimes, or just, you know, the whole complex combination of all the things that have ever happened to you in your life that put you in a place where just just being on a carnivore diet isn't going to be isn't going to solve all your problems. <laughs> mm. um, and it's so very multifactorial. It yeah. is, it is. And and this is sort of gets into maybe some of the other criticisms that if you keep taking things away, well what's left? And obviously there's meat and salt and water that, that's left. But is there a process by which reintroduction to obviously to a to a threshold to sort of see if there's still those symptoms you know manifesting is that okay perhaps in in the you know in the in the school of carnivore or not well i don't know if i can speak for the school of carnivore but i can tell you what i think about it uh, and my views have kind of changed um that on the one hand it seems to me like it wouldn't be utterly implausible for a diet that's very low in plants to provide optimal health like that's a possibility but even so that doesn't mean that you can't be extremely healthy eating other ways let me come at it from a different angle um i think that if you're if you're a person like me who needs to avoid plants or a person like many others I know who um, needs to avoid carbs to be at their best health. It's great that we've found this, but I think that it indicates underlying disease and lack of health. I think that a strong, healthy person shouldn't, you know, become bipolar just because they're eating some salads. Like, that indicates to me that there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so even if, so if I got to a place where I could eat anything I want, modulo like things that we know are very unhealthy, like a, a wide variety of foods that our 
ancestors and, and humans have been eating for a long time that shouldn't really cause me a problem, then I would feel I had really attained true health. Now, at this, on, on the other side of the coin, I still might choose to minimize plants and carbs because I might still feel better than I do when I'm, when I'm eating them. I don't know if that makes sense. But. The, I mean, the reason I'm asking is because, so having moved to, to Bangkok, Thailand, where the primary meat sources is, is pork and chicken, the food miles that comes, say, from beef and lamb, so things that I feel, I feel better on, is obviously they're imported and obviously, you know, the food miles is, is actually um, very expensive and not really good for the planet. So there are local suppliers of lamb and beef, but obviously, you know, it's quite hard to get and it's also, yeah, it's, it doesn't taste the same. So then that becomes one, a price issue, two, a taste, a taste issue. And I'm feeling obviously that I'm, I'm missing out <laughs> um, mm-hmm. on, on optimizing my health here. So it's, it's been a real challenge for me in terms of trying to find that balance of eating things that are going to make me, you know, sustained and feel energized as I did when I first started out on carnival. So I have eaten a lot of pork belly and I'm trying to eat a lot more salmon, um, and processing sort of chicken, like deep frying. So in tallow. So I'm trying to, you know, up. Up my fats that way but just still feeling that if I was say back home in Australia where beef and lamb were more available less food miles I you know I'd, I would be doing better yeah it's quite possible there are nutritional differences I mean the the redness comes I guess from carnitine and, and maybe iron and uh yeah I guess iron mostly and um you know, even just there are differences between chicken and turkey, say, nutritionally, and if you were focusing on one more to the exclusion of other, it's, it's going to have a different profile for sure. And then if your particular needs, if you can tell that you feel better with more red meat in your diet, then yes, on the one hand, it would be nice if you could just say, okay, body, this is what we're doing now, so get used to it, but you can't necessarily dictate that. <laughs> And so, it's coming at a time of menopause as well. So, you know, throwing in this other, you know, life change of, you know, estrogen depletion. And it's just like, I'm just a hot mess girlfriend. <laughs> so <laughs> literally and metaphorically. Yeah. So. yeah. So what do you think about the linoleic acid in pork and chicken? It's a good question. Um, you know, I think... On the one hand, if you're not eating any linoleic acid from salad oils or, or cooking oils the way that a lot of the rest of the population are, the amounts that you would be getting from pork and chicken are probably not that big a worry. But mm-hmm. there are people who think that, you know, just from ha- if you are, if you have metabolic difficulties in the first place, then you really need to prioritize lowering linoleic acid as far as you can from all sources and and that that may be true for some people so it's definitely a compromise and then so in pork and chicken you can you can obviously try to 
minimize your levels by getting animals that have been brought up with less of a linoleic acid feed because for for those kinds of animals the fat levels are going to reflect what they're being fed whereas for ruminants like goat and cow and sheep they tend to process that out and turn it into longer chain fatty acids mm. um so i don't know there it's a bit controversial and it might depend on your your state of health going in how you actually are yeah so i think a lot of people worry about overeating protein what would you say to those people i think <laughs> overeating protein is usually not a concern for a couple of reasons um one is the thing i alluded to earlier that the human body is just not made to deal with a high level of protein and what happens if you eat high levels of protein for for the most part is you will naturally just your appetite will naturally steer you toward higher fat foods when you're when you've had enough protein um that said if you have high been highly enculturated to avoid fat you may find it difficult to to embrace enough fat to make up for that or you may just be selecting from foods that are so high in protein that you're naturally eating more protein contrary to uh what a lot of people are advocating uh protein seems to not have give as much satiation as fat and so you can get into a bad feedback loop where if you're eating very low fat and not enough protein you your appetite will just lead you to eat more and more protein and then that can get to levels which which may be of concern uh and then the second thing is if you are uh <laughs> i want to say post diabetic although i don't mean to imply that you're cured but if you if you had diabetes for a long time and you're on a low carb diet because of that uh diabetics have a much stronger um glucagon and insulin response to protein that can can be much more easily uh, disruptive of ketosis and blood sugar than it would be in someone who doesn't have that history. Mm. Which was really interesting because before Christmas I was actually on a higher protein uh, so I upped my protein and lowered my fat. Mm -hmm. So for this period of time just to sort of have a look at sort of body compensation and the more protein I ate the worse my blood sugars were and that was obviously a concern because here is this protein source and I was increasingly my blood sugars were were increasing so um yeah I was not sure because I'm not diabetic I thought I was insulin sensitive but unlike Sean Baker I wasn't working out you know that's <laughs> thing. so I wasn't sure whether having that extra protein there was this surplus and I thought gluconeogenesis was was you know this was meant to be demand driven not supply driven so I, it, it, is, it was very confusing it was a very confusing time it is demand driven but what causes that demand can be actually ironically maybe uh changed by eating protein because of the hormonal response so if the if your hormonal response to protein 
can induce a demand <laughs> mm. uh, for more gluconeogenesis. So there are so many feedback sim uh, systems that uh, in some people more than others, more protein can can actually lead to blood glucose reg dysregulation. And I think your point about Sean Baker has something to it because if you're if you're exercising a lot, then you are you you are using that glucose. So it's it's just like um, you know you can be an athlete and be ketogenic on maybe 100 grams of carbs a day, whereas I know lots of people who can't go over 20. Um, so definitely your physical activity is going to have a, a big effect on what kinds of macronutrient tolerances you can have. Mm. Yeah, it was certainly very frustrating because I was expecting, you know, to be ripped and shredded after this period of time. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and all it did was my baseline numbers were, were terrible. Yeah. Well, it's, a good, it's good that you did the experiment and found out for yourself. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. Yeah. So first of all, Amber, um, tell everybody how they can find you and look up some of your work because I know you've had a um, paper published recently. Thank you. Yes, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, well, to find me, just to contact me or chat or ask questions, I'm, I'm far too active on Twitter for my own good. And my handle there is Keto Carnivore. Uh, but I also have a website, which is called mostlyfat.com, mostly-fat.com. And I have uh, links to blog posts that I've done over the years, a link to a book that I've been working on very slowly, chapter by chapter, but I'm releasing it online, and also a list of my publications. Very excited about that one that came out because it was it's a paper on the nutritional completeness of a carnivore diet. And I'm so excited to have a discussion of this in the literature after, <laughs> I guess, about 100 years uh, nearly since the, the initial experiments in all meat diets, which, which were done by Stefanson and Anderson, who were explorers, and I, I refer to them in the paper as well. Right. Is there anything on your, from when you, because you've been low carb and keto for a long time now, and anything now looking back that you wished you would have done differently earlier or even just differently? You know, it hasn't been a perfect journey, but I think that I'm, I'm actually very happy with the way that things played out. And even though I have this new health issue that I'm learning how to cope with, I feel like all of it has been really educational. And I'm the type of person who tends to learn things the hard way. <laughs> I'm a bit stubborn and um, <laughs> hard-headed. So anything that I've struggled with was all to the good, I think. Yeah. Did that high-effect ketogenic um, way that you're actually doing the, the gut the gut healing now, has that been informed by the um, the Hungarian, sort of the paleo, paleo medicina? 
Absolutely, yes. I was very, I learned a lot from them. I visited personally and have talked to some of their patients and the, the difference between what I'm doing and what they're doing, I think, comes down to uh, food restriction, portion control, because they have a component of that in order to keep protein even lower, not only are they um, having very high fat, but also portion restricted. And I, I just, I have a lot of problems with that from a theoretical and a practical standpoint. I think that if your body's hungry, you need to feed it. And so what the main difference would be that I'm eating ad libitum, um, and I don't put as much an emphasis on organ meats as they do, in part because they're hard to get, but um, in part because I am supplementing some particular nutrients right now with um, just pill form, which I, th I think can sometimes have advantages over trying to get them in pure food form. Mm. Which is really interesting here because I just walk out on the street and there's all this mystery meat on a stick. So you'd be really <laughs> impressed. I've I've had like, I've had heart and kidney and liver and gizzards on a stick. So it's wow. Actually, yeah. Well, I like all those things. Um, the it's hard to get organs besides liver here. I found a source of brain and I really like brain, but even with that and more so with liver. I tend to, my appetite for them goes away. So if I haven't had liver in a long time, the idea of liver will one day suddenly become really appealing. I'll just say to myself, wow, I really want some liver. But mm -hmm. if I eat liver consistently for a period, it becomes less and less appetizing. And, and I think that, I really think that's the body telling me there's enough of that. Um, because yeah. you can have too much of certain nutrients, especially vitamin A, which is very high in liver, for example. And, and I think um, it would be a mistake to try to try to control for that when your appetite might be already giving you that information. Sure. Mm. Yeah, I can I can relate to that. As in, my, sometimes I want liver, and then other times times I don't, and it can sit in the freezer for months. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not big on liver, but I don't mind it in pate or like a roulette, like a pork roulette sort of. Oh, thing. I love roulette. Yeah, I can do that. So the last question that we like to ask our guests is your top three tips. Top three tips. <laughs> That's so <Pressure>. hard. <laughs> uh, one is be be open-minded. Um in, in both directions, like if whatever you think you know, you, you might not, you might learn something still. And that might even be against what I'm saying. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, second, you know, I think I would have to say it comes back to protein. Don't be afraid of eating protein, but don't necessarily believe the hype that more protein's always better either. Hmm. And finally, I think I think self-experimentation, although it has tons of problems. I mean, you can't control for things and you're you're influenced by your mind and all kinds of other factors. There really is no better 
way to find out what kind of effect something's going to have on you until you try it yourself. Because even if all the literature points to something being the best for the most people, you're not most people. And so you you ultimately need to find out for yourself. Mm. And I think that most people attitude is most people who are what sick most people who are on a standard american diet or a standard western diet most people who overeat so you know you can't even say that about most people yeah because everybody's different yeah and and we are all one species i don't think that it would be fair to say well oh yes some people are going to do their best with no meat at all that's where i draw the line But uh, because it's just a species-dependent need, and there's plenty of evidence for that. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a wide variety of ways that people can thrive. We're also a species that is exquisitely adaptable and flexible. That's been part of our way of surviving so well. And and there are are definitely differences in tolerances and, and variances in things that some people can do and other people can't Mm, fantastic amber thank you so much for coming and joining us on on the podcast it's been fantastic talking to you and your experience with carnivore because it's such a hot topic at the moment and there's there is lots of misinformation around so it's great to get your experience thank you so much for having me on and letting me tell you about my experiences it's fantastic to see you again so Thank you. Likewise. Next time in real life, I hope. Oh, that would <laughs> be good. <laughs> Big hugs. Yes. Yeah, great. Well, Jackie, are you inspired to give carnivore another go? I think I could be. Uh, not saying I'd do it immediately, but maybe in the next couple of months, give it another try and see see if I can get past two weeks, actually, without pulling my hair out and feel like I I can't do it and and I did have I've had that's the second time I've done had that experience when I've cut out everything completely that I just feel like I can't do this I want some vegetables uh the time when I did it when I included chocolate and olives I was much happier but so, I, was, I was curious where Amber was actually saying about the higher fat higher fat ketogenic um, approach that she's using obviously now to to heal her her gut issues i wondered if that might be another another approach that you could take yes although i don't see myself i have tried eating just pure fat cow's fat as the hard lumpy stuff i have tried eating that and it really doesn't appeal and doesn't go down very well but if i could eat butter i would be fine but I think Amber was saying that it is about making it work for you, that there has to be, obviously, there was a price consideration, there was a taste consideration, but ultimately I think it's about what it is that you're trying to achieve. And obviously for Amber, it was about the remission of her her bipolar 2 symptoms and weight loss. And mm-hmm. for you, you know, what is it that you're trying to achieve by, by carnivore that you're not getting getting now with with the way of eating that you're you're approaching it now yeah i think it's just an additional bit of weight loss would be good for me i don't think i have well 
I don't know if I have any health issues that need help with because some people do this and then they find out things get better that they hadn't expected. So, you know, maybe I might find something unexpected. Maybe you could get a good night's sleep, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) That would be nice. Yeah. But I think it's, it's, again, this is another option. This is another option for people who have perhaps a range of symptoms that they haven't yet considered and the science and that's the fantastic thing about amber and her ability to communicate the science the the science behind a plant-free approach to eating as she said is you know about the the anti-nutrients that are in in the plants the plants have this defense mechanism which are designed to deter them you know being eaten which is a survival Mm. a survival mechanism engineered that way so it gives you you again it's it gives you food for thought so to speak yeah and it's different because some people do really well just eating mainly vegetables and small amounts of meat or no meat even absolutely but yeah i think it just depends on the conditions you have and how your body responds i'm sure there's some genetic element to it that the way we process these foods mm. yeah and i think everyone's just got a trial and error all aspects of keto low carb and see what works for them absolutely so it was lovely to catch up with my friend amber and um, yeah i do hope to be able to get to the conferences and to be able to see her in person again someday soon so um, yeah she's a lovely lovely lady that would be good so jackie Let's tell the listeners where the show notes for Amber's episode is. So show notes will be at www.fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero three two. Great. Thanks, Jackie. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo. And you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button. Reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners. Please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice, 
should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. <music>